Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. While things are still unsettled in the world, we are going to be turning to some of our favorite episodes from the past four years, which I hope you'll enjoy. Did you notice when it suddenly became okay not to say goodbye at the end of a text message conversation? Have you, like me, responded to work emails solely using GIFs? Is the tilde your favorite punctuation mark for conveying exactly how much you don't care about something? Welcome to the club, friends. You're internet people now. And I hope that after this episode, you will never look at the letters LOL at the end of a sentence in exactly the same way ever again. We are talking about the linguistics of the internet this week. How it got that way, where it's going, and why it's a good thing that our words are changing so quickly. We're joined by Gretchen McCulloch, a linguist who likes to say she lives on the internet. She analyzes the language of the internet for the people of the internet. And her new book, Because Internet, is just for us. Gretchen writes the resident linguist column for Wired and hosts her own podcast, Lingthusiasm, which, as you might have guessed, is very enthused about linguistics. She joins us over the internet from Montreal. Thanks so much for talking to me, Gretchen. Thanks for having me. So one of the first points you make is that there have always been these two registers of speech, formal, like in public speaking or books, and informal, like in conversations or letters, but that the latter has always been a lot more difficult to study just because of how linguists are able to capture that data. So how has the internet changed the game in terms of analyzing informal writing? Yeah, absolutely. So as you said, you know, writing, especially writing that you can share with anybody at any efficient level, has often been this sort of formal genre that gets, you know, edited and typeset and distributed and is a very narrow range for what could possibly be said. And the internet lets anybody make a tweet or a blog post or a text message without going through filters of people who need to approve what they're going to say or disapprove of what they're going to say or not give them access to that kind of microphone at all. And that can be good and bad. But from a linguistic perspective, it's just really, really, really interesting. So do you think that means also that our informal ways of communicating with one another are evolving more quickly than they have previously? Because one, it's happening at lightning speed and two, nobody is standing on high censoring it? So there are two ways of answering that question. And my, you know, my answer is yes and no. Uh, because on the one hand, the internet can speed up language change because it increases our contact with people that we might not have had contact with at all before. 
and in especially increases our exposure to weak ties. Those kinds of acquaintances that you may not have friends in common with, but are the way that changes spread from social group to social group. If something only spreads within your strong ties, it's just an inside joke. But if it spreads from one group to another, it's, you know, going viral, it's a meme, it's something big, uh, and language can spread mimetically as well. On the flip side, the other thing that's interesting about the internet is that the tools that we use to communicate, that try to help us communicate, can also sometimes make us more conservative. Because if you have something like spell check or autocorrect, predictive text trying to say, here's something you might want to say, it's only basing that corpus on the things that people have already said. And so bits of language change that might have happened organically, maybe you're not evolving as quickly as they might have. Well, I wonder how these conversational norms have evolved between different communities and then between these different platforms. Because the language used on a place like Tumblr is very different from what you see on Facebook or Twitter or forums or email. But they do all seem to bleed into one another eventually. I think it's a really interesting question about the relationship between different communities. So we know that language spreads more through weak ties than through strong ties. And when you apply that to social networks writ large, social networks that encourage you to interact with people you already know are going to be responsible for less language change than social networks that encourage you to interact with new people. So Facebook is never going to be the epicenter of language change because people are on there to connect with the people they already know, except for like Facebook meme groups where people do connect with people they don't know in the groups. But that's where you're going to get language change on Facebook. You're not going to get it on the general feed. And so somewhere like Twitter or somewhere like Tumblr, where people go to interact with people they don't know, where they go to perform a different style of identity, that's going to be more susceptible to evolving new styles of language because people are open to new experiences. Um, there was really interesting research that uh, I read about when I was researching this book, which was that you're, it seems that you're most likely to pick up new vocabulary or new ways of speaking in the first third of your lifespan. And in the general sort of offline world, that can mean, okay, teenagers are responsible for language change. This isn't, this isn't new. But it also applies to any time you join a new community. So this particular study was a study of beer rating message boards, <laughs> beer tasting message boards for like 10 years. And they found that pe when people joined in the first third of their lifespan on this beer tasting message board, whether they stayed for a couple years or for 10 years, they were more likely to pick up new beer jargon from their fellow beer aficionados. <laughs> then once they'd been on the board for a while, they were like, yeah, no, I don't, I'm not using this new term. I'm, I'm still going to talk about the beer scent rather than its aroma. Like you people using aroma now, what, what are you doing? The whippersnappers. <laughs> uh, so people tended to get more conservative the longer they'd remained even in that one community. So social networks that foster new communities can also foster language change, you know, happening on them fairly rapidly because everyone's coming together and creating these, you know, all bringing in their different resources and creating this mixing pot. Right. Well, and as you point out, the reason why teenagers drive this change is because like teenagerdom is the first or I guess the last time where we're all sort of collectively entering a new social context, sort of like everybody who goes and joins that message board for beer lovers is joining a new context. 
Right, exactly. But that doesn't mean that language doesn't change after you're a teenager as well. You know, if you start a new job, you're going to pick up a new vocabulary, a new set of jargon for that job. If you become a parent, you're going to pick up all of this parenting vocabulary. But when you slice the population by age bands, not everyone starts a new job at the same time. Not everyone moves to a new city at the same time. Not everyone becomes a parent at the same time. Uh, or if ever, for some of these things. So if you slice people into age bands by 10 years, you see this 10 to 19 year, you're like, wow, everyone's doing all these changes. But in 20 to 29, or 30 to 39, or 40 to 49, people are doing different life events that lead to language change, but not consistently in the same band this anymore. So it's hard to see it when you look at population level statistics and you have to look at group level, community level statistics, which has just been harder to do without the internet. So how do you pick up internet lingo if you didn't log on to the internet as an adolescent? How do people who haven't grown up with, say, emoji learn how to use them? People's speech patterns do change when it comes to the internet. And emoji are a particularly good example because emoticons took a bit longer to catch on because you had to remember how to make them. You had to remember, you know, which of the possible combinations made, I don't know, Abraham Lincoln in emoticons and punctuation characters. Whereas emoji are kind of right there. And especially once Apple's predictive keyboard started predicting emoji for people, you saw a tremendous explosion in emoji use, especially by this older demographic. Because if you typed the word cat, Apple would suggest to you the cat emoji. And so that opened them up for a group who might not have switched to the emoji keyboard themselves, but when they were prompted with, would you like this small picture of a cat? They were like, oh, I like this small picture of a cat. I'll take it. So it's deeply intertwined with the technical tools that we actually use to access these types of symbols, whether that's what punctuation characters are on a keyboard that you can combine into a face or how we access emoji. What about internet lingo that isn't tied to a drop-down menu or its own keyboard? My favorite example of this is probably LOL, which used to mean laughing out loud. Um, and even before that, apparently little old lady, but that predates me by many, many years. <laughs> there are reports of, of LOL meaning both little old lady and lots of love, but I don't think those pieces of slang are particularly active for most people at this point. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, dad died, LOL, grandma. <laughs> Ooh, awkward. Uh, yeah. So the story from LOL that we can trace back goes back to the 80s uh, with somebody literally using it to mean, yeah, I was, I was laughing out loud. You know, I wasn't just doing like a smiley face. I was actually laughing. But it quickly turned into what I think of as a more aspirational laughter. Like, I acknowledge that was funny. Ideally, maybe I would have actually laughed, but I didn't actually laugh. But I want you to know that I did think that was kind of funny. And we see this shift as early as 2001. So there's a book by David Crystal uh, about language on the internet, which I see as kind of a, a forerunner to my book. Uh, and he notes in 2001, it's unclear how many times people are actually being sincere and laughing when they say LOL. So that was already very much in place. And what's interesting with that shift is it's not just that people stopped using LOL because it no longer meant laughing aloud. It shifted to something that's more in line with the social functions of laughter than the actual physical act of laughing. So we often laugh for social reasons because we want to acknowledge something was awkward. We want to diffuse a certain moment. We want to uh, acknowledge what the other person was saying. We don't always laugh because something's actually funny, because you're, you know, there's a stand-up comedian there. And even if you are watching a stand-up comedian, you'll laugh more if other people around you are also laughing. 
So laughter isn't just a response to something that's funny, it's this social experience of acknowledging awkwardness or diffusing tension, or just acknowledging something unexpected. And that's some of the functions that LOL has now. And one of the ways you can do that, right, is by tacking lol on at the end of a sentence. As in, we should probably talk about this lol or I hate you lol, right? Right. So you can tack on LOL or lol at the end of a sentence, something like I hate you lol doesn't mean <laughs> I hate you and I'm laughing about it. That means I'm saying I hate you, but I'm actually joking about it. I'm, I'm softening that meaning. But what's interesting, and this is from a study by Michelle McSweeney that I cited in Because Internet, is if you add a lol to something that's already really warm and fuzzy, if you say I love you lol instead of I hate you lol, suddenly I love you lol is not as good. It doesn't soften I love you lol and somehow make it better the way it makes I hate you lol better. I love you lol is actually kind of mean, it's teasing, it's, you know, it's not as good as just sincere I love you. So it adds this extra layer of meaning and sometimes that extra layer of meaning can make a message nicer, and sometimes it can make a message less nice. So speaking of other layers of meaning, let's discuss punctuation. There have been many pixels spilled over the meaning of a stray period or, God forbid, like three periods in a row. <laughs> um, <laughs> so how has punctuation evolved to encompass those you know, extra social meanings that we don't necessarily get in straight text. I like thinking of punctuation in terms of tone of voice. So emoji I think of in terms of gestures and punctuation I think of in terms of tone of voice. There's these classic older examples like putting something in all caps to indicate that it's shouting um, or repeating a letter to indicate that you're lengthening a particular word like yay with lots of y's uh, or yay in all caps. This was really fun to read in the audiobook, by the way. <laughs> uh, so you have these kind of very obvious, you know, emphatic sort of things. And if you think about the internet as inheriting this tradition of informal writing, people have been doing emphatic stuff in informal writing for a long time. In handwritten letters, a lot of what people did was underlines, sometimes multiple underlines, five underlines, uh, underlines in different colors of ink. Like people had these ways of emphasis that don't show up in books from the era, but they do show up if you go look at letters and journals and diaries and these kinds of things. And uh, there's this great example of a letter from some author who, you know, got his book accepted and he's he's put this excited word uh, hooray or something, and he's outlined it in red crayon. <laughs> the rest of the thing is in black ink, and he's outlined it in red crayon. So people were doing emphasis before the internet, and the form of the emphasis just had to shift once we weren't able to use, you know, red crayon. But what really excites me is also this way of using punctuation to convey secondary meaning and double meaning. So not just authority or excitement or enthusiasm, but also ironic authority and ironic excitement. So when you have a clash, when you have a mismatch between the words that are being said and the punctuation that's being used on them, you end up sort of calculating that into this second layer of meaning. Yeah, irony punctuation is definitely what I reach for most often, especially because there's a whole range of it to express all the little delicate variations from uppercase letters to tildes to sparkly text and elongated words and spaces. So how do all of those operate to create a second layer of meaning? So you have examples that play with 
authority. So things like ironic capitals. You say very important person and put a capital at the beginning of each of these. Yeah, maybe that's actually important. Or, you know, I've got, you know, so many emails <laughs> to deal with. Or something like that. You can use something that's ordinarily used for a proper noun, for a, you know, name of an organization or a company or something like this, like, oh, it's got capitals, it must be important, and put it on something that's clearly not that important, and thereby indicate a certain ironic emphasis. And there are examples of this. Uh, A.A. Milne has some examples in Winnie the Pooh that it's not quite clear if he meant them ironically, but to a modern reader, they really read as ironic. But the one that I get excited about is the tilde on the internet because... It also starts as enthusiasm instead of authority. Um, because I don't know if you remember, you know, back in the day, you know, decorating your status messages with tildes and asterisks and mm -hmm. stars and sparkles and stuff like this. And that was just excitement at the time. But then it comes back to indicate this sort of ironic aesthetic or ironic excitement of like, you know, my brand is strong, but you put it in sparkles to be like, look, I don't actually care about a brand. I just am pretending I do for the sake of this sentence. Why do you think the tilde worked? Because it's not like the first ironic punctuation mark that has been suggested. There are suggestions for irony going back hundreds of years. Why the tilde? Yeah, I think the tilde worked partly because it traded on this existing double meaning. So the problem with proposing a new irony punctuation mark, like centuries of philosophers have done, is if you're going to use, you know, a backwards question mark or an upside down exclamation mark or some sort of new symbol, you then have to tell people that's what that symbol stands for. And if we wanted to be completely lucid, we already have a perfectly good tool for that, and it's called not being sarcastic. It's too obvious if you use an unambiguous sarcasm punctuation mark. You need to use something that has that ambiguity in it, because otherwise it, there's not really any point to that sarcasm. And the nice thing about the tilde is it had that established existing excitement use, and especially often in combination with the asterisk, but the asterisk by itself already had like several meanings, <laughs> so it wasn't really available. Uh, you know, the asterisk is used for bold and for emphasis and for correcting typos and for narrating your own actions in the third person, and I think just adding sarcasm to that list was just too much. But the tilde was available. <laughs> and one thing that's especially interesting about it is, you know the shape of the tilde, right? Like it goes up and then it goes down and then it goes up a bit again? Mm -hmm. If you think about the pitch of your voice when you say something in like really deep sarcasm, like, so interesting, that so actually makes the shape of the tilde when you're saying it. So I think it was helped by that. I don't think necessarily people were doing that thinking, oh, you know, I know how acoustic phonetics works. Like, this is definitely what my intonation is doing. But there's an impression that sarcasm sometimes has this sort of lilty sing-song voice and that the tilde has this sort of lilty sing-song connotation, even if you aren't paying attention to the specific acoustic cues. Well, one thing that I thought was really cool was how often people who were talking about the kind of like linguistics of emphasis or of irony like we're self-reflecting on this and you have this awesome quote of this tumblr post from 2016 which i'm going to try to read in the proper <laughs> emphasis we'll see if it works um so this is all uh from the tumblr post i think it's really cool how there are so many ways to express emphasis on tumblr and they're all completely different and it's Hashtag wild. 
Hashtag <laughs> emphasis, trademark, what have you done? <laughs> I had to read this out loud for the audiobook, so I was just sitting here being like, I wonder if she's going to do it the same way I did. <laughs> did I? I think I say, uh, to express emphasis, TM, like I just say the TM. Oh, okay. And they're all completely different. It's hashtag wild. Hashtag mm-hmm. emphasis TM. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but what I found is that it's really hard to do all of them at once in mm-hmm. the hashtag emphasis TM because there's just too many things going on there. And that's why you get the person in the next line saying, what have you done? <laughs> because your brain breaks when you try to read that because you're trying to say it with some sort of intonation, but there are too many different intonational things going on and jumbling. And I think that's exactly why you can't really read that out loud. Well, right. And it's like three different meanings because hashtagging something and then doing the spaces between every letter and uppercasing it and doing the TM, they're like all subtle different forms of irony. And if you smash them together, it's meaningless. Yeah, it's it's four things going on at once. It's ridiculous. It's too much. It's a it's a break in the system. But it's interesting that you can create this break and that everybody gets the same break. If you understand how the system works, it will break everyone's brain collectively. <laughs> so you can you can hack people's brains with punctuation. So speaking of changes in meat space, as we call non-internet spaces, <laughs> um, since we've just been talking about sort of online communication, how have you seen as a linguist online communication translate into speech? So there's like obvious examples, like people saying hashtag awkward or don't at me. But it also seems like a lot of these technological changes and and the internet and smartphones, all of that has really changed the conversational norms in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that's really interesting, and I found for this part of of Because Internet, I was going back to the early days of the telephone when the telephone was being first introduced. Um, And people were really unsure what to think about it. And there was at the time this perception like, oh, well, the telephone may be legitimate for business, but like these frivolous women using it for gossiping, that's not the intended purpose of the telephone. And now we're like, of course the telephone is social. What do you mean the telephone's only for business? But there was a lot of controversy with the telephone. And one of the things that was weird for people is that it suddenly made them available to anyone potentially around the world, or at least in the immediate vicinity, at any time of the day or night. When before, if someone wants to come get you, they have to knock on your door. They have to send you a letter. The mail only arrives once a day. You aren't as interruptible. And this idea that like now anybody can call you was really weird for people. And at the same time, because anybody could call you, there was a perception that you have to be available. You don't know who's at the other end of that ringing phone because, of course, call display and these kinds of things weren't, you know, voicemail weren't invented for many decades afterwards. And so this is this survey from the early 90s that found that the majority of people would answer a ringing phone no matter what was going on, even if they were in the middle of a serious argument with their spouse. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I come across this survey 25 years later and I'm like, wow, okay, I wonder if this replicates in the 2010s. So I asked a bunch of people, I put it out as a poll on Twitter, and people said, not only would I not answer the phone during an argument with a loved one, but I would also maybe just not answer the phone. <laughs> and people would say, oh, well, well, I'll check to see who's calling. And if, you know, if it's someone that I want to talk to, then maybe I'll answer it. But if it's urgent, they'll text me. People know that if it's urgent, they'll text me. And so we've made ourselves less interruptible by the phone. And I think that's overall a positive thing because 
when you have a, an unknown of a ringing phone, there was no other way to have a, to schedule something real time. There was no other way to schedule a phone call other than by a phone call. So if you have old school phone manners, you call someone and you say, is now a good time to talk? Because they're going to pick up that phone no matter what. And so you know that maybe they picked up their phone and actually like their dog is escaping or something right now. And they're like, look, I need to call you back. <laughs> or they're in the middle of their favorite TV show. And they're like, look, can, can we talk later in half an hour? But there's no other way of scheduling that. Whereas now you don't have to ask people on the phone, is now a good time to talk? Because you were able to text them <laughs> first and say, hey, are you around? You know, do you want to talk sometime later today? So that politeness, that kind of polite door knocking has shifted from being part of the phone call itself to being part of the text form, which is less intrusive. Because if you get a text and you can't reply to someone, you don't have to do that. Or if you're in a group with other people, it's very disruptive to take a phone call. But it's less disruptive to reply to a quick text. But it's also a shift, because if you're used to these phone norms, you don't find a phone interruption rude, whereas you do find a text interruption rude. It's not that there's one absolute for what is rudeness. It's that people have different senses of which interruptions are legitimate and which ones aren't. So, I mean, where do you see speech language going now that we have the Internet, you know, stretching ahead of us as this brand new horizon? Like, where do you see language going and how do you want linguistics to evolve with that new exciting language? What I really like to see out of language is a shift in people's attitudes towards language. And I think we're getting there, but I think we still have some some work to do on this. Because there's still a perception in some corners that language is a tool to demonstrate your intellectual superiority. You know, if you know about apostrophes, you could get to demonstrate that you're educated in these kinds of things. But Language can be a tool for connection. If we're thinking about correct language, if we're thinking about what's the best form of language, can't that be the form of language that makes other people feel seen and heard and included? You know, you can publish something, you can acquire an audience of a certain size, and you don't need to go through the conventional gatekeepers. Like, if you want to start a blog, uh, if you want to have a popular Twitter account, you can do that and you can reclaim some things that uh, maybe have been appropriated from you or that you want to talk about. You can give people a platform that doesn't require traditional approval. Uh, and I think that's huge. And give people the ability to see that other people also write informally in a different sort of way than a formal variety. Because if all you're being exposed to is the type of print and text that you see in books and newspapers, then you might think if you can't emulate them in your letters, you're doing something wrong. But if you're seeing everybody else's tweets and posts and everything on social media, and you realize that other people are also using slang and other people are also, you know, creatively respelling things to convey particular tones of voice, then you can say, oh, maybe there isn't something wrong with me. Maybe we're participating in this really interesting creative endeavor that's not just an inferior version of what's in a book. The internet is a very big place, and its language is equally vast. Gretchen McKellig's new book, Because Internet, is your key to understanding the new rules of language. And of course, how to break those rules. Since reading it, I've been looking at my own conversations in a whole new light, and I promise that you will too. We have links in the show notes to Gretchen's book and her podcast, which is about way more than the internet, as well as other linguistic oddities. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.